0: Well, good evening. Well, I have 100 slides to get through, and I will not be one minute on each one, but uh, it's a lot to cover. So uh, let's get started, shall we? I'm um, not going to show you that distant, the denominational chart, no, way you can see it, but let's take a look just uh, as an overview. It's a quick review. We see that uh, uh, Protestantism sprung out of a protest of what was Roman Catholicism. Um, out of Roman Catholicism, you see on the west and the on the on the left which is west to me. Uh, you've got the east-west schism. You know, Roman Catholicism broke between Italy, Rome, and it moved over to the east in modern-day Istanbul, Constantinople. Uh, and then from there, that, the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholicism, you get Protestantism. So from the Protestant wing there, you see we've got Lutheranism, uh, Calvinism at the bottom, Anglicanism in the middle. And, and that can be confusing to people. What have, we have as our basis... The same belief system everybody's got and always has had, especially when we came to this country, everyone's got their own way of doing things. Usually it's just a slight little tweak here and there, we like this, we don't like that, we're better than you, we do this, you don't, baptismal modes, how often you do the Lord's Supper, uh, there's all kinds of things, we'll fight over anything, and that's what a lot of these denominational issues are about. I think mature Christians, God gave us all this to say, how are you guys going to get along? Yeah. There's always going to be something to split about, why don't you learn to agree to disagree? Yeah. And disagree on the major, or disagree on the majors. And Okay, if this one's better for you, you see the early Christians at the top, and then uh, across you've got Egyptian, Coptics, the Roman Catholics there in the middle, Eastern Orthodox on the far right. From the Roman Catholics you get Protestants, and then all those, those denominations below. It's all kinds of stuff. And then you've got what's not there is the Bible Church people. Uh, the Bible church people, we try to make sure to just get rid of all the denominationalism. Let's just go with what the Bible says. And then, you know, here we are, a, a kind of a sectarian group out of, out of uh, all the denominations, and we think we've got it right. At least we're trying to be right just with regard to what does the Bible say. That'll be what we do. So hopefully we're better than everybody else, right? <laughs> That's a joke. I don't think that. So let's do a quick review and the events uh, in England and the colonies in the 1600s, and then we'll get going on this. So uh, King James ruled England from 1603 to 1625. Uh, you can see the there's a little picture at the bottom, and so this is going. You've got Jamestown founded in 1607. So what we're doing is we're looking at England and the United States, kind of putting together. The pilgrims immigrated from England in 1620. Uh, there it is. Uh, you've got King Charles ruling after his father Uh, James I, who was also called James VI of Scotland, that's King James, 1625 to 1649, when King Charles I ruled, he got his head chopped off. And uh, the Puritans uh, immigrate. Charles oppressed Puritans, causing thousands of them to leave and go to America, beginning in 1630. Other Puritans uh, who stayed in, in England rebelled against King Charles in a civil war, they won and they executed Charles. This brought in Oliver Cromwell who was a Puritan who ruled for 12 years. And you'd think in England, wow, the Puritans are ruling. These are Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people, led by Oliver Cromwell. God only allowed him to rule for about 12 years, and then he died, and it went back. They went and brought Charles I's son back, put him on the throne, Charles II. And he schemed to make England Catholic again and put uh, uh, real... Biblical Christians in jail like John Bunyan, he was arrested as a Baptist preacher and jailed for 12 years during Charles II's reign. And there he was. All he had to do was say, okay, I'll just do and preach what the church says to preach and I can get out. He wasn't in for any long, didn't have a sentence. His sentence was as long. He would be in there as long as he decided to, at least until he decided to comply with the state. He never did. 1688, the English overthrew the monarchy. They invited William and Mary from the Netherlands, who were monarchs there, to rule England, and they did from 1689 to 1702. And in 1689, they issued the Edict of Toleration and got rid of all of this uh, back and forth in that country about who could preach what. Our focus tonight will be the same period, same time period as these, uh, except we're going to move from England over to the American colonies. So, in this trip to America, it would have been in a ship like this, Mayflower. Uh, the Pilgrim separatists moved to the north, to North America, not to establish religious freedom per se, but to establish a society based on their own beliefs. So, you've got the Edict of Toleration. They're coming long before that. It's not that we need to, to establish our own religious freedom, but it's kind of, a, it's just a subtle little switch. But they want to establish their own society based on their own beliefs. We want to be able to live in a society where we believe what we want, and that's what the society will be. And we begin with Virginia. No religious freedom in Virginia. Only Anglican worship, because they're, they're Englishmen and women, and they've moved from England. That's where Anglicanism raised reigns, so Anglicanism would be prominent in the new United States, or the colonies, we should say. And slavery was introduced in 1619. They could not, uh, in the wars that they had with the Indians, uh, they were able to subjugate some of those Indians, but really what it was was you've got this crop, a tobacco crop, uh, other crops, and they need help, cheap labor. And so the, you've got a, a slave trade in, in England, and they brought to the United States in 1619. In New England, up in the north, you've got pilgrim separatists, who are living up there. These were Puritans. Uh, they believed in congregational worship. A congregational form of church government is. Okay let's see. What are we going to do next at Harvest Bible Church? Here's some ideas. Everyone vote. Throw your hand in the air. And we go with the majority. It's like just a democracy. A congregational form of government. Well that's a dangerous form of government. Uh, that People end up doing what they want. They vote what they want. It may or may not be biblical. A church needs to be biblical, and the majority doesn't usually know what biblical is. If you wanted, if your church was a completely um, democratic uh, place to vote, and you wanted to get your agenda in, just go invite your unbelieving, atheistic friends. They come in here, we're going to have a vote, throw your hand in the air with this, and we can take over the church. Congregational forms of government ideally might work, but when you get unbelievers in a church and Today, unbelievers fill our churches, don't they? Unfortunately, uh, churches today cater to unbelievers, and they get to vote. But there's no religious freedom over in, the, in this northern part of the new United States in England. New England, I should say. Uh, Baltimore, if you've ever been to Baltimore, Maryland, this is where you get this. This gentleman's name was actually Cecil Calvert Baron Baltimore, a.k.a. known as Lord Baltimore. He was a Catholic and he sat down to, he had bought some land, he had gotten this charter to have some land in the new United States, and he came to Virginia, wanting to live quietly as a Catholic. Not easy to do in England, wasn't easy to do here either. Virginia expelled him because they were Anglican, and so he created Maryland as a colony for Catholics. He had the ability to do so. Even today, it's, it's very Catholic in Maryland. Uh, he granted religious freedom to others, because he hadn't had it, now he had it. And when he did so, the Baptists, Presbyterians, and the Quakers filled Maryland and even outnumbered the Catholics in Maryland. The middle colonies there, you can see more New Jersey and uh, uh, Pennsylvania, religious freedom was given and granted. Uh, The Baptists, the Quakers, the Presbyterians congregated to these middle colonies as this migration from England comes over. You've got all kinds of people and different ideas, people coming in. There's not necessarily religious freedom. They're still under the crown, but they're away from the crown. There's some bit of, of freedom that they hadn't had before. Rhode Island, Roger Williams was the first to form a colony dedicated to religious freedom in what was one time called Rogues Island. Did you know that? I'd heard that in the past. I had to look that up, make sure that that was true. Uh, became Rhode Island. Baptist Presbyterians, and the Quakers eventually came to Rhode Island. So the Baptists are always, as we looked at in the past, these are some of the most persecuted people on the planet, and they're only, they're looking for a place to be free to exercise their um, their freedom, their what they believe, their firm conviction that baptism follows conversion. Presbyterians are coming from John Knox's Scotland, and they're also finding a place here in Rhode Island, in Pennsylvania. Does that guy look familiar to you? Do you see him every morning when you wake up? There you go. That's Mr. Quaker. That's actually William Penn. He was a Quaker. He founded the colony of Pennsylvania for Quakers. Uh, Quaker, just so you know, I've got another slide on here later, but just to to beat you to the punch, the Quakers were, uh, they didn't like Puritans. Um, What they wanted to do was their own way. They didn't believe the Bible was God's word. Um, they were your modern liberals. Uh, they thought that you were supposed to feel something. They were your not only your modern liberals, but they were your modern charismatics. Whatever feels good, that's what we do. And they would shake. And they were quackers. You can say quackers if you want. Um, but they were very prominent in the day. And uh, uh, in a place where now religious freedom is growing and growing, they were starting to feel quite... Uh, free in the new United States of America. I keep calling it that. It's actually just the colonies. The Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Quakers were strong in Pennsylvania because of the religious freedom offered by William Penn and his followers. In the Dutch colonies, uh, you see over in this east coast, the New York and New Jersey were originally Dutch colonies. Granting religious freedom early in the life of their colonies, so people are coming here from England, some are finding great freedom, others are not so much freedom, but there 's more freedom here than there has been perhaps that they 've ever known than they 've ever known it's not a it 's not what it is today it 's not necess- it 's not a separation of church and state yet you 're still under the guise of the English Empire and of the crown. These are crown colonies, we would call them. The Dutch Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians settled in these middle colonies, in these Dutch colonies, New York and New Jersey. Georgia was a little bit unique. It was a, a utopian, a unique utopian colony, uh, formed later than all the other colonies in the early 1700s. Uh, by the time Georgia was established, social sins had a hold on many of the colonies. So, these Social sins up in the, I don't know why we call them social sins, but the uh, sins of society, uh, sins of sin, right? And they're uh, up in the north, and, and being practiced, uh, James Oglethorpe formed, or, formed Georgia, and he outlawed alcohol and slavery. Now, slavery's big at this time, and alcohol might be even bigger. So to outlaw those two is not going to make him a real popular person. But this is what these people, you always get sometimes, you get this, this I say you always get sometimes, that doesn't make any sense. But there's always someone (laughs) that comes along that, look, we need to make a change. And God grants these people, and they may or may not have success, certain various degrees of success. We'll see a good success that happens as as our lecture goes forward, but this is what Oglethorpe tried to do in Georgia. In New England, these colonies up to the north, uh, stretching up from Massachusetts into Maine, Uh, the factors that worked against the commonwealth in New England. We'll see, I think I've got five or six factors. There's always going to be factors that work against various things that people are trying to do in the name of Christ. And we'll see here the number one thing, or at least the first one I have on the list, of the factors working against a Christian commonwealth in New England. Number one is going to be prosperity. Now you've heard that this was, our country started as a Christian country. I don't really think you should ever believe that. Um, Christians came here but it was never a Christian country. When the Christians were here, they were still under the crown uh, in England. There might have been more Christians at one time, but it didn't take a generation to pass before whatever was noted as a Christian nation was anything but. Um, I've always cringe at the idea we are a Christian country. I'd like to think we are. Uh, there were Christians who were part of our founding fathers who wrote the Constitution, James Madison was supposedly a Christian, and others among the, the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were active members of their church, uh, at least 50, 52 of them were. That, does that mean they were great Christians? Eh, that depends on how you define a Christian. But prosperity is going to be what, one that works against this uh, Christian Commonwealth, internal dissension. It's the Calvinists urging people to read the Bible with different interpretations arising. Christianity can't be passed on biologically. And the conflicts with Indians. And finally, rationalism comes in. So let's take a look at prosperity. Uh, The prosperity, you've got Puritans, the Pilgrims and the Puritans, a Christian society on earth. They were trying to build what you and I might want to do, too, if we go to a new country. Okay, if we're going to go to a new country, there's a new land. Let's take our church and let's go over there and start it out right. Well, we would try to do that. Why wouldn't we try to do that? Of course we'd try to do it. How far would it go? How long would it take before things to start going awry? Both groups were seeking to set up a government on earth made up of God's people, both the pilgrims and the Puritans. Puritans are trying to purify the church. Pilgrims are just moving from point A to point B. They may or may not be Christians. These groups saw themselves as a covenant community and believed God had an agreement with them, just like he had with the Jews who inherited the promised land. They believed, many of them did, that they were the new Israel. Have you ever seen this? Heard of this? That the Puritans that came over here, they think we're the new Israel. This is the new land of Canaan. And we're coming over and we're going to annihilate everybody, as Moses was told to do, in in Canaan. And we're going to live happily ever after in this new land. We're God's covenant people. Does God say that? Never says that, and you know. And then today, people will quote passages like Second Chronicles seven fourteen: "If my people who are called by my name will repent and ask for forgiveness, and God will heal their what their land." Well, if you think you're the new Israel, that land is the United States of America. Uh, but the writer of Chronicles is talking about Israel; he's talking about the Israelites and the land of Israel, not the United States of America. So it's kind of liberal. It's a typical of uh, of the covenant communities. Not necessarily heresy, but it doesn't lead to great things. They wanted to preach Christ and convert the continent, and they believed, as all good postmillennialists do, that by doing so they would usher in the coming kingdom of Christ. A postmillennialist is one who believes that Jesus will return after we have preached the gospel to the world and there have been significant conversions. Then Jesus will come back. That's why they're big in evangelism. That's good to be big in evangelism. We should all be out there telling people about Jesus. But that doesn't mean the more com- people come to know Christ, that Jesus is going to come back. How are we doing? We're not getting more godly. We're, we might be having people fill out cards that they'd say they're Christian. But even at the high points of this, in this country or in this world, we are, post-millennialism is bankrupt. Don't adhere to it. Worldwide, I mean, you and I are blinded by the fact that we live in the South. We live in South Texas, where if you go a little bit north of where we are, it it ceases to be Christian. The rapture, as you've heard me say, is going to be very insignificant, extremely insignificant, a blip if it's that at all. And we're in South Texas. Show me a Christian country. Where is there a Christian country? A country anywhere on this planet that follows Christ. We have remnants of it in this country, but it's really just confined mostly to the South. And really, what we see in the South isn't really Christian at all. It's a bunch of people who call themselves Christians who go to mega churches with mega church preachers, and they all look spiffy and they say nice things, and they don't even believe in Christ. It's your modern mega Baptist church. The early pilgrims arrived in 1620, half died the first winter. You're thinking, wait a minute, God, I thought you blessed us to come over here. No, half of you are going to die. Isn't that typical? Not not of God, but of our own minds. Half of them die, more than half. Seven years later, they had established a relatively comfortable existence in a village that looked something like this. And these are tourists, pictures that I took while I was there, and you, know, you go around and see these little towns, pilgrims and the communal property as part of a corporation, the Joint Stock Company, uh, which what they were, they agreed that no one would own personal property. You're not going to come in and own your own property. You're, these are crown colonies. Houses, food, crops, animals were all shared. Well, what would that be like? Houses. Hey, what are you doing in my house? Not your house. My house too. Uh, that's that's. Um, what are you doing in my pantry? Well, this is my food too. That would be strange. It'd be odd. Predictably, productivity suffered as it does when people own everything. No one wants to work. Robert Cushman, preaching against owning property, said this, Nothing in the world more resembles heavenly happiness than for men to live as one, being of one heart and one soul. Nor does anything more resemble hellish horror than for every man to shift for himself. I disagree. Hellish horror is that first part. Now, in eternity, that's going to work. Right? But it does not work on this side of eternity. Sharing Absolutely. Giving, looking out for people in need, yeah, but this Christian communism does not work. Never has. Because Christians are just as selfish as communists. Thousands of Puritans immigrated to Boston and other cities in Massachusetts beginning in the 1930s. You've got up there in Boston, the Puritans were there and the... Uh, In Plymouth, you've got the separatists. These are slightly, ever so slightly different. Some are looking to separate. Some are looking to purify. But each group is coming to this east coast. The Puritans and separatists adopted a congregational form of government. These are Calvinistic churches. Again, as I said earlier, they vote. Uh, This is how they come together. You might vote a pastor in. You might not like him three weeks later. You vote him out. You get the next guy in. Uh, The two merged into one movement, and it became known as Congregationalism. Here's the 1622 type of construction. And by 1640, the construction was improving. Prosperity spread rapidly after the Puritans arrived. These were hardworking, God-fearing people, and they blessed these colonies. By 1640, the pilgrims in Plymouth were able to build nicer homes, and some of them still stand. Uh, You see over there in the 1640 construction. Uh, Plymouth eventually eliminated its laws mandating communal property. William Bradford, who was one of the greatest men I think I've ever written, I've ever read about, uh, William Bradford sarcastically wrote this. No man now thought he could live except he had cattle and a great deal of ground to keep them, all striving to increase their stocks, by which means they were scattered all over the bay quickly and the town in which they lived compactly, Till now was left very thin and in a short time almost desolate. In other words, they were starting to live just like we seek to live today. Um, Bradford was one of those people that when people came over, when he brought the first people over and he's governing these folks in uh, in Salem, he's waiting for them, this massive overflow of God's love and the Christian behavior. And he was stunned. At people that call themselves Christians, having affairs, homosexual relationships, stunned him, uh, as it would anyone. Yet it was. So we looked at the first one, prosperity, which always tends to, to uh, put a damper on things. Number two, we're going to look at the internal dissension and the factors working against the Christian commonwealth in New England. The other three, we'll hit in a minute. The internal dissension, you know, that happens too. People come over here, we're all happy. So if we took Harvest Bible Church into a new country, you think we're all going to get along? Maybe two weeks into this, you're going to go, uh, Lance, you might have been in charge in Cyprus, but uh, you really don't know anything, and uh, we're going to get a new leader here. That would be fine, but that's kind of the way things go. Wait a minute, we want Lance. No, no, we want blah, blah, blah. We want him. We want her. Get ri-. Internal dissension. You ever seen it happen? Yeah. Pretty normal. Because everywhere we go, we take our sin, don't we? We can't escape it. Cambridge-educated separatist Roger Williams declared that civil judges should not enforce religious beliefs. What do you think about that? Should civil judges enforce religious beliefs? Good. This is our first uh, church-state separatist here, is Roger Williams. He believed everyone should be able to choose what they want to believe. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's true. Human freedom, we believe in that. We'd like everyone to believe in Christ, but we know you can't make them do that. He's bringing that. Yes, he's kind of bringing that first little idea of separation church and state. But mind you, you and I look at that and go, of course. Back then it was radical, radical. Roger Williams was radical as a result. Williams questioned things like the king of England granting plots of land to English stock companies. What does he get to do that for from England? He questioned that the church should sanctify society. Is it the church's responsibility to sanctify society? Well, how do you do that? How does the church sanctify society? We go and we tell people what's right and what's wrong. Do we sanctify it that way? Maybe some are converted. Most people are just going to hate us. Then, and especially now, doesn't mean we shouldn't try. He questioned the blending of church and state in Massachusetts. There it is. Again, that's radical. He questioned the use of the sword to force right beliefs in their realms. You're going to believe this or I will take the sword and chop your head off. I and mean, you could tell that to your kids, but after they, they leave, you know you 're kind of out of luck and the authorities banished him. These were questions that just went way too far and the, and the authorities now are people that answer to the crown in England. They are the Anglican church, and here 's Roger Williams, just like you and me today, if we were there, and yet here he is in this these radical ideas in that time period. this internal dissension during his exile, Williams received shelter from a native Indian tribe, so he 's been exiled, Native Indians. Helped him. Um, he uh, actually got very sick. And, uh, and they, appreciating all that he had done for them, uh, brought him back to, uh, or at least nursed him back to health. In 1636, he bought a small bay from the natives, which became known as Providence. Providence, Rhode Island. Under the leadership of Williams, a radical idea was birthed in Providence. Here it is. A civil government that refused to favor any specific religious beliefs. Radical then, normal to us today. And this is what this says. I mean, this is what you say, you know, where's the, where's the Christianity here? We're in a Bible study on Wednesday night at Harvest Bible Church. What are we learning? Is this a, is this a, a history class? It is. But it's the history of the church. It's the history of where we fit into with our beliefs and how we hold our Bible and how we teach it, how we fit into this society, why we're even able to do it. When it happened, so believe me, as the teacher, I'm always trying to find, Lord, bless our time. Let this be a time of worship to you. Well, Lance, I hear the other side of turn, to hear God saying, well, you just just giving history lesson, Lance. Give him my word. Okay, well, it's just brief. Uh, I think it fits in. At least I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it fit into what we're doing as worshipers. But note that. This is what this, Roger Williams wanted, a civil government that refused to favor any specific religious beliefs. I, I don't want a, a government that tells me what to believe? John Bunyan spent twelve years in jail, saying, "I will not do what the government says." Others died for that. Roger Williams baptized himself, <laughs> became a Baptist. Couldn't find anybody he respected enough to baptize him, so he baptized himself. Later, he doubted his authority to baptize himself and decided no one has that authority. I don't mean an Anabaptist is a Rebaptist. I don't know what you call someone who unbaptizes himself. And he spent the rest of his existence uh, not, never, never finding the true apostles that could baptize him. He spent the rest of his life waiting for God to reinstitute true apostolic authority. Um, don't know why he thought that's what needed to happen. You wonder how some of these people get these ideas, but that's what he did. Anne Hutchinson. Uh, if you think Beth Moore is new, uh, Beth Moore, this is Beth Moore's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. This is all liberal, uh, women's lib. Uh, doesn't just date back to Anne Hutchinson, but she is one of them, one of the early ones in the United States. And a Bible study in her home, forbidden for women, by the way, Anne Hutchinson had declared that Christians were not bound to obey any human laws. They should be allowed to act as they please without anyone telling them what to think. Not so bad. She's spreading this. Supposedly had visions and dreams. Does that remind you of anyone? Joan of Arc, Arc. yeah, I was thinking Beth Moore, but uh, uh, that too. (laughs) People having dreams and visions, it's amazing. I wonder what it would be like if I came on a Sunday morning and said, guys, I had a dream last night, and here's what it was. How many of you would stay for that? I mean, most of you would probably sit there and go, where is he going with this? But there would be others that would be mesmerized. They would want to know, what, what, what do you think that meant? What was God talking to you about? And I could build a much bigger church than we have now just based on my dreams. They are quite interesting. They're strange and weird and sometimes demonic. But uh, uh, she had dreams and visions, and that's all you do. I come up and I say, open your Bible. We're going to take a look at what God's Word says. And you turn there. But if I said, look, I had a dream last night. God spoke to me. Some people think that's more exciting. Some people prefer that. But how do you know that dream or vision is from God? You and I as Christians, we know whether it's from God, if it matches what God's Word says. If it doesn't, you know, not everyone knows, that it's not worth talking about. She fled to Providence after being exiled from the Puritan colony where she could at least be safe and uh, do, her, uh, do what she wanted to do, live in her own world. Uh, later she went to what is now Long Island, New York, It was then a Dutch colony, as I said earlier. Uh, The Indians of New York rebelled against the Dutch, and the Dutch warned Anne to flee from the Indians. But she refused to leave her home, having had a revelation from God that she would be okay. Guess what happened? She and most of her family were murdered. Um, Guess it wasn't God talking to her after all. would be fine if she had said, "Uh, God has told me to stay, Uh, come what may. I'll live or die, but this is where God wants me to say, no, I'm going to be okay. No, you're not. You died. God wasn't talking to her. And she allowed and caused many people to fall. Now, that scenario is all over the world today. In fact, my first passage on Sunday morning from Luke 17 is, is uh, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come along. Cause Stumbling blocks, that which causes people to stumble, causes people to sin. It's a figure of speech for sinning. These kinds of teachers are out there everywhere. They cause people to sin. People love them. They want to hear what they want to hear. I was watching a guy on, uh, watch a guy on YouTube quite regularly. He's one of the... Uh, the Heresy hunters out there. Um, and he's, he showed all these these, Chris, these Christian uh, singing groups. Uh, Jars of Clay was on there today. He said, These people are so far from being Christian, they never even wrote a Christian song. They're interviewed, they're pushing the gay agenda, they're pushing an agenda that's anti-Bible, not just not of the Bible, but anti-Bible anti-bible and they're in the christian music industry i think christian music folks is one of the tripping points out there today that's one of the stumbling blocks listen to that garbage not all of it of course not all of it but you've got to be very discerning in what you hear just because you've got this hypnotic voice of some guy singing like a girl trying to bring everybody in and slow down everything and close their eyes and bring it all into them That doesn't make it Christian, because you say Jesus' name doesn't make it Christian. Quakerism. Quakerism arose under the leadership of George Fox in England in the 1600s. He claimed Protestants were devoid of the Holy Spirit. Strange, because they were the most Spirit-filled people I've ever read in my life. Continue to read. Uh, Rejected Protestant traditions and the Bible, which he called the dead letter of the law. The Bible, the dead letter of the law. Sought God's inner light as a guide. So we're going to get rid of the Bible. It's a dead letter. What's the inner light? It's so subjective. Don't ever let anybody tell you subjective things. The inner light. What, what is the inner light? Is it LSD? Some people think it's LSD. Some people think it's cocaine. Some people think it's, it's sexual, sensual pleasure. Some inner light. Some people think it's something you get when you're drunk. Some people get something you think when you jump around for 45 minutes and hollow out your mind or doing yoga. That this is somehow this inner light. I felt it. You, it's hard to argue with people when they feel something, unless you know the Bible. Look, I don't care what you feel. What we feel is so deceptive. But what is, is what our guide is. The Bible's at the dead letter of the law. Quakerism was pushing the Bible as the dead letter of the law. Look to your inner light, whatever that may be. No prearranged preaching in their services. They sat and waited for God to speak. How about if you came to church every Sunday? I stepped up. <laughs> Folks, I'm having a little hard time waiting for something. If y'all could just wait for a few minutes. Talk amongst yourselves. Got it. Here's an idea. Uh, many do that. In fact, there's an old joke of a guy that said, you know, I don't need much preparation for, for my sermon prep. In fact, he said, the only preparation I do for my sermon prep is from the time I leave my parsonage till I get into the pulpit. You know what the elders of the church did? They moved his, his parsonage 30 miles away. So. Just a joke. During this time you've got the Salem witch trials and the Salem witch trials really don't, don't ever it, I'll just tell you what I think I think Salem witch trials were, were these were demonic there was 15 people really it was 5 women who were going to a, an Indian called an Indian lady called Tituba, Tituba I believe is her name and she was teaching them about demons and she was teaching them to listen to spirits and their behavior became such where people thought there's something wrong with those chicks and something needed to be done And they didn't know what to do. They were acting like demon-possessed people. They called them witches. Uh, I think there was even a dog. Uh, One of my preacher friends uh, said, yeah, there was a dog related to one of these things. I don't know how that popped in there. I haven't found a whole lot of research on that. But uh, when you've got a country that is trying to be Christian and then trying not to be Christian, um, who's going to be intricately involved in that? Satan will always be there. And so these people began to look, especially when you've got people calling themselves Christians like Anne Hutchinson and the Quakers who are out there, have ditched the, the Bible as the dead letter of the law, and now we're trying to find some inner light. Oh, you were just saying, Satan, come in and talk through me. This is how he does it. It's what he does. In 1692, someone in Salem, Massachusetts claimed to have seen a 12-year-old girl practicing magic. The girl and her friends falsely accused several older women of practicing witchcraft. And in the Salem witch trials, 50 citizens accused of witchcraft provided confessions to the judges and were freed. 50. But 19 accused citizens refused to confess their supposed guilt, and so they were executed. Now, people today make this a point, especially atheists and people that, that rail against Christianity, look at look at your, your, your past. Look at what you've done. You used to kill people because you thought they were witches. Well, the problem was there. The problem was the issue. Uh, and the Bible does not, the Old Testament, say you shall put a witch Anyone practicing the occult to death, simply with the word. In our world today, we say we would never do that. Unfortunately, we don't. Unfortunately, we don't take adulterers and have them undergo capital punishment. Unfortunately, we don't do that. Today, it's just common among people that call themselves Christians. Living together, sleeping together, it's all part of what it means to, to serve a God of love. Today we do it and we just announce our sin. Look at us. God is love. God is love. But there's a reckoning for our sins and today we just don't have it in us. It's just people don't, we're not afraid of God unfortunately. So we've seen prosperity got in the way, internal dissension in the church. Uh, let's take a look at how Christianity can't be passed on biologically. You know this, right? Uh, I had a well, the, the daughter, the preacher's daughter of the church where I grew up in Conroe, uh, told me one time, she said, Lance, she said, you need, when you get married, I wasn't married at the time, and she and her husband are good friends of mine. She said, when you get married, you need to make sure that you have lots of children. You need, we need to birth more Christians into this world. She's the pastor's daughter. I thought, you know, I really didn't, I didn't really think a whole lot of it at the time. I remember it now. Okay, yeah, I didn't know if she meant you need, to, you need to make sure they are Christians, which having been a father, you can't make your children Christians, can you? You can give them the gospel and pray that God would save them. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. But she was speaking in terms of having babies, two Christians, husband, wife, having children produces Christians, right? How many of you know that as a living example? No, it just doesn't happen that way per se. Well, they learned it in the early part of this country. Church government membership. Church and state were joined in New England. That's something we have a hard time fathoming. Um, So if you do something against the church, against the Bible, you've done something against the state. You can be punished just like you would if you had a speeding ticket or committed murder. A person had to be a member of a church to vote or to be a magistrate. So you've got to be a member of a church in order to vote in the elections. Not just in the church, but to be a, a, a citizen in society. All infants born into the community were baptized into the church. Okay, So you're a Christian, you and your wife are Christians, you come to this new country, you have a baby, the baby's baptized, and now the baby baby is baptized. You're Christians, the baby's in the church, part of the covenant community, the baby. But what happens to those babies? They grow up. They were a covenant community enacting God's government on earth, so they thought... And for full church membership, each person had to have been baptized at birth and have their own personal conversion experience to be shared. Okay. Well, babies can't share a conversion experience. Babies uh, aren't even supposed to be baptized because they don't have faith. That's what saves is faith. A baptism today of an infant is really is just parents saying okay we're going to bring our child we're wanting everyone to know that we're dedicating our child to the Lord we want you to hold us accountable we're going to raise them in a Christian home and we're going to pour water over their heads which means nothing just gets kids wet, head wet it's all it does and for those of you who did that I'm not putting it down I'm just saying that that's a it's a beautiful tradition but it's not in the Bible and it doesn't do, doesn't do anything for the kid so if the kid grows up and becomes um you know Jeffrey Dahmer you won't say well I mean he was baptized as an infant you know six days after he's born you know it doesn't make any sense You'd be surprised how many people think that. So as these kids grow up, and the society gets less and less Christian, what do you do? If baptized with no conversion experience, they made this compromise and said, well, you're a halfway member, because you have no experience, but you have to be able to vote. You want to be able to vote in society. If you want to be in government, you have to have been baptized, you have to have a conversion experience. These kids didn't have that, so they made them a member halfway. They were part of the covenant community because of their parents' membership at the church, and the halfers had the rights of a church member. But without a testimony of their conversion experience, they couldn't be full members, halfway members. Then halfway members had children of their own. And now we're in need of revival. It's no longer, I mean, the parents of you have Christians, they have kids who never convert, and then those unconverted kids have kids... Now the quarters, quarter covenant, right? Um, And so, as I said, now you need revival in the country. Enter the need for revival. So we've seen prosperity take its toll on those in in New England and elsewhere. Internal dissension of the people. The fact that Christianity cannot be passed on biologically. And now we've got conflicts with the Indians because they were here first. We'll look at rationalism in a minute. So you've got the British who have come over here. This is uh, Massachusetts. Um, down here, if you know your states down there, so uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey down south. So the French, Indi- uh, the English, French, and the Indians, you've got the French up north in Canada, parts of New York. Uh, the colonists were British. The French were also present and were competing with the British for control. The French incited the Indians against the British because they thought that might help them gain control. These Indian missions, missions to the Indians, were not immediate. Um, you had to learn the language. John Elliot, a Congregationalist pastor in Roxbury, Massachusetts, was appointed to preach to an Indian town periodically. In fact, John Elliot made it his goal to go learn the Indian language. You think, what a great idea. Do you know the criticism he got? Why did not you just teach them to speak English? It's always something. Eventually, Eliot learned the Algonquian language. Say it. Algonquian language. That's what I said. And he translated the New Testament into it. I don't know what y'all heard, but that's what I said. He succeeded in setting up several what he called praying towns whose citizens were converted Indians. So there were Indians coming to faith in Christ. Mm, didn't work that well uh, because one of the, uh, have you ever heard of King Philip's War? Now, not many have, unfortunately. It's, uh, it, was the most, it was the bloodiest battle in the history of our country. In the history of our country. As the colonists spread, tensions increased with the Indians, although some were coming to know Christ. When the chief of the Wampanoags, Wampanoags, look, I I don't speak Indian, but... uh, When this chief died, his son Philip became chief, and he became known as King Philip. He resented the conversion of the Indians by the colonists. King Philip's war broke out, the bloodiest in the history of America since more people per capita died than in any other American war, including the Civil War. How about that? Um, the, the the Indian population was whittled down to a mere 10% of what they originally were. The colonists sold the Indians, those who were left, into slavery. Ugly time, ugly time. Um, all dating back to a time we came here to make a Christian nation. You make a Christian nation, have a bunch of savages that are here that were really, these Indians were demonic in what their belief systems were. Uh, Some actually were converted, a beautiful thing, but had to deal with them. So prosperity, internal dissension, the Christianity can't be passed on biologically, the conflicts of the Indians, and then the last big issue uh, is an issue we still face today, and that's rationalism. The issue of rationalism. Rationalism is that, you know, I'm speaking rationally right now. I'm putting my sentences together uh, with the subject, and the predicate, and there's direct objects, and... I try to word things in such a way that makes sense. It's nothing I say is illogical. You might not understand everything, uh, but it's not illogical. And you, you respect that, right? We all do that. Uh, who says that we have to be rational? Isn't it rational to be rational? So if rationalism is the, and, and I say that not to be silly, but to show you that the people that believe in rationalism then and now, it's a circular argument. Why are you rational? Because it's rational. Well, it's rational. Why? Why, am I, why do we have to stand up and make sense when we talk? Who says? Who says we have to stand up and make sense when we talk? Well, it, well, that's just one of those things we assume that should be. Okay. Why? Why? Why should we assume that? Didn't our world come together in a chaotic kaboom? Out of nothing? In the mind of nobody and Nothing. Have you ever seen anything scientifically that explodes out of chaos and comes together with order? Right down to the DNA and the atoms that make it? Folks, if you believe in Darwinian evolution, I am so sorry for you. It is completely bankrupt. It always has been. It can't work, especially if you believe in rationalism. Everything must be rational. Why must something be rational? How did rationalism and logic come out of that chaotic burst of energy that was at one time a singularity so small it couldn't fit between my two fingers? It exploded into everything we see. How? Because that's what we think. We think if it's this big and if you ran the tape backwards, it all came back to a singularity. It once exploded and went out. How does that which explodes make this kind of rationalism? Why do you think rationalism is... Is, uh, is rules today? Why is rational from God? Because it's rational. That's a circular argument, and right there it defeats itself. And yet, this age of reason—you're looking at a picture of Sir Isaac Newton. In the minds of many, the time seemed right for a faith centered in universal reason. We've seen that mass, right? William of Ockham. Uh, you've seen um, Thomas Aquinas. And this reason—it went from scripture alone to scripture and reason, then to reason and maybe scripture if we need it. So it's back, here it is in the United States, or in the colonies. In 1687, Isaac Newton showed mathematically how gravity could explain the mystery of planetary movements. That's great. All he's done is show you in God's amazing world that there is gravity and how it affects planetary movements, the very planets that God made. Unfortunately, people took this and said, wait a minute. We don't need the Bible. We can use our God-given minds to look at the God-given universe and make God-given assumptions. We just don't need God. (sighs) I don't need air. I don't even think air exists. (sighs) I can't see it. The very breath I need to say I don't believe in air is what I have to take to say I don't believe in air. This is what rationalism in this age of reason produces. Newton published his proofs in a book titled Mathematical Principles for Natural Philosophy. Now, mind you, Newton was a believer in God. No doubt about it. He believed in God. We're not going to trash him for it. In this age of reason, it was inspired by new possibilities of scientific reasoning. Later thinkers developed new perspectives on how to seek and discover truth and relegated the Bible to a myth. That's happened, that happened then. It happens today. You come across these people. You can't believe that book. Or you bring this book out and you start telling people what this book says and they go, I don't care what that book says. That book means nothing to me. I believe in science. Well, that book is what makes science work. The fact that that book reveals a God, how do you, why do you think science works at all? We're, we're, what does science do? It just tells us what is it. It doesn't tell how it came to be. It doesn't tell how things work. It just says that it does work. God made it. Science and, and God never contradict each other. Don't you love, back in, in COVID, the science proves it. What, what? What did science prove? That you're all idiots? One doctor says the science, I thought science proved something. I thought science, I learned this in the, in the grade school. This little remote control here. I am going to make a, a, a hypothesis. My hypothesis is that I'm going to drop this from here to my Bible, and it's going to fall to my Bible every time I do it. I'm going to do it 10 times, boom, and it falls every time. Every time. After the 10th time, I'm going to make a theory. My theory is there is some force, something out there I can't see that's causing that remote control to drop and fall. I know it's gravity, but my theory is every time I drop this in a contained situation, it's going to fall and hit the ground. That's science. Science today in, in medicine? Well, we made this new substance. If we put it into your body, science tells us you're not going to get covid We've decided to put this little piece of covering over your mouth, and science tells us that you won't get COVID if you get it and you won't give it. What's science? That's not science. And so what people call science today has nothing to do with what real science actually is. God made it. God made it, this uniformitarian idea that this is going to happen every time, on this planet, in this contained circumstance. That's what God gave us. We can count on that. The result was what we call the Enlightenment, where we get rid of the Bible, and it's a myth, and we're just going to look at reason and logic, which, by the way, is what God gave us. In the beginning, the Greek text says of John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning, the Logos was existing. That's where we get the word logic. The Logos was existing, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Is God. Logic has always existed. Why? Because God has always existed. He never called logic into existence. It exists because He exists. Well, the Enlightenment wasn't very enlightening. It focused on individual reasoning, words, science, and natural order. All things that God made. In this age of reason, you've got individual reason was advocated in Western philosophy and cultural life as the primary source and legitimacy for authority. Brian Hobbes said, with human reason and the five senses crowned as king, mystery, including the twin mystery of tradition and authority, is banished. A God who intervenes in human history is viewed as irrelevant. So the only thing you need are your five senses, what you can see, touch, smell, hear, feel, whatever it might be, that that's, that's what truth is. How many of you can see love? How many of you can, can see hate? How many of you can you see what, what is behind the beauty of art? How do you, how do you quantify that? No, those things exist too. The five senses don't get that. They exist. Harvard University, there's a snapshot of it, a Polaroid of it, 1600s. You may, you may know this, you may not. If you don't know, it's going to blow your mind. Calvinists, who were among all these Puritans who came to this country, had always emphasized education. People must be able to read and read the Bible. Pastors must be trained to teach the Bible. What school do you think they started to do this? It wasn't Dallas Seminary. Congregationalists founded Harvard in 1638, eight, 18 years after the pilgrims arrived. To train pastors. To train Calvinistic pastors. Now, when it says Calvinistic, it's saying biblical pastors. Because John Calvin was a biblicist. Here's what the Bible says. We want to train people to read and understand the Bible. To affirm God's sovereignty and exhorting growth and holiness. Teaching it to the society where they live. Harvard University. To teach truth. To teach Jesus Christ. How about that? Harvard University and rationalism, however. Now, in this right here, the the middle dot there, the blue, is the earth. And it was believed... That the earth is the center of the solar system. That we are the apple of God's eye, the earth, and that everything surrounds the earth. God is looking at the earth. Well, science said, uh, no, the sun is, not the earth. And everything goes around the sun. Oh, the church is wrong. All these years the church has been horribly wrong. Can't believe the church anymore. That's kind of what rationalism did. This is the time Isaac Newton, who, though he acknowledged God, rejected the Trinity as irrational. He does not believe, did not believe in the Trinity. It's irrational. You can't have three that's one, one that's three. That's irrational to him. The notion of a geocentric universe promoted by the church had been shown to be false. The new explanatory power of science led to the belief that reason was the answer to all. Okay, look, if we can't believe the earth isn't the center of the world and science proves otherwise, let's just get rid of the whole thing. And so they did. Many Christians appropriated the authority of this science to prove that there is indeed a God. The emphasis on rationalism became principal at Harvard by the end of the century. It later evolved into Unitarian Church, deism, and the present spiritual deadness all over England to the present day. Bill Gates, uh, who's the girl from, uh, what's her name? Natalie. Natalie Portman, atheist, atheist. That one in the middle there is John Quincy Adams, who was a fine Christian man. Don't ever let anybody tell you that John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, wasn't one of the greatest Christians that ever governed our country. And then, of course, the others. This is what dominates coming out of Harvard. These are Harvard graduates, by the way. Uh, The Edict of Toleration in 1688, 1689, England enacted the Edict of Toleration, which I said earlier, from William and Mary, granting the right to believe anything that one chooses. This Anglican church was built in Boston around that time. uh, And now Massachusetts could no longer keep other denominations out. Um, So the toleration, so you've got this deistic uh, time. Everybody's able to believe what they want. Here's what um, Thomas Paine said about deism. Here's what it is. There is a happiness in deism when rightly understood that is not to be found in any other system of religion. All other systems have something in them that either shock our reason or are repugnant to it. And man, if he thinks at all, must stifle his reason in order to force himself to believe them. Well, I would expect that. Man, we come from the dirt. God, our creator, is so high. If something God says in his word doesn't offend you, wouldn't you expect that? This holy and awesome God who made the universe? Is he going to say a thing or two along the way that's going to upset you? Offend your sensibilities? Of course, we expect that. The Trinity is not in any way contradictory. God is not, God is uh, one God and exists eternally as three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the, the, is not the Son. That would be a contradiction. One God who exists eternally in three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I love that God. That God is powerful beyond my imagination. So powerful that when Moses said, I want to see your face, God told Moses in Exodus 33, if you saw my face, you would die. These eyes, literally these eyes, these fleshly eyes we were born with, mine are dry right now. I have contacts in them to see and then ugly readers at the end of my nose to see. These eyes are incapable, as are yours, of seeing the holy God. Imagine, when we will behold him, 1 John 3, 2, we shall see him as he is. We will be like him, John says, for we shall see him as he is. We will be given these glorified eyes to stare into the face of the creator and be mesmerized. No, deism is saying, well, if I can't understand him, then I'm not going to do it. Deism believes in God, though. Deists believe in God. God made the world, spun it into motion, and went off into his cosmic fishing trip. He has nothing to do with it. That's what deism is. Thomas Paine loved it. Here it is, a little chart here. You've got in the first one, you've got God above. God is transcendent and imminent. The Geodeo-Christian worldview on the far left. In deism, God above, the world below. God is transcendent but not imminent, meaning he's not in the world. He doesn't broach the world. He has nothing to do with the world. And then in secularism, God is neither transcendent nor eminent, whatever. That's just kind of the whatever uh, secularism today. Enlightenment thinkers embrace deism, seeking a universal foundation on which all religions could agree. You've got Ben Franklin at the top, uh, David Hume. Um, bottom here, you've got uh, Immanuel Kant, Thomas Jefferson, Voltaire at the bottom. These are enlightenment thinkers. Um, God created the natural order, then he left it. That's deism. God exists, and he should be worshiped, people say, because he did create the world, deists would say. Scripture's not inspired. Reason is, which is strange because some people reason this, some people reason that, and they contradict. How can they be inspired if that's the case? But common sense goes out the window. God God rewards good, and he punishes bad in deism. The human soul is immortal, and a good Christian admires the ethics of Jesus Christ and follows his example. Deists... Like Jesus. He's a good guy. He's a pretty cool dude. Follow what he said. Do what he did. That's a good deist. But he's not God. Well, as you know, as you can see, there's a great need for renewal as uh, the 18th century rolls around. This religious laxity in the early 1700s, the colonists assumed they were Christians because they lived in a Christian country or were born to Christian parents. And it prompted several preachers of various locations to begin to preach the Bible and the true way of salvation. Um, One of the first ones that came on was Theodor Frelinghausen. I'm not telling you about Count von Zinzendorf, uh, who started his in Germany and came, but with Frelinghausen. He preached the gospel. He came to a church and he realized, these people are not saved. What do you do when the people in your church are not saved? Preach the gospel. And he tried to prep them for the Lord's Supper. This is what the Lord's Supper means. People became Christians. Gilbert Tennant, who was a Presbyterian Calvinist, preached the gospel. Same problem. People weren't Christians. He thought that people don't grow into Christianity, they convert to Christ. Yeah, but people didn't like him for it. There was all kinds of ruckus in it. Some people loved him. Some people came to know Christ. Jonathan Edwards is a Congregationalist, a Calvinist. And he's in, in uh, Massachusetts. Fralinghausen and Tennant were in New Jersey. Edwards noted the rise of Arminian ideas in Massachusetts. Arminian meaning not Calvinist. Uh, The ideas that people have today. Edwards would have come along to your average Baptist church today and said, none of you people are saved. If you think you are good enough to be saved and you can do it on your own, you're not saved so he began to preach the Bible, as John Calvinists would do. He preached on the rebirth and holy living. And when you do that, you're talking about you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You are unable to come to Christ on your own. Let me give you the gospel and use, use the gospel as God's way of opening that door for you. He sought to exclude the sinful from communion, and this got him fired. Jonathan Edwards got fired from his church. So if I ever get fired, I'll know that the great men long before me got fired. He just said, if you don't believe in Christ and you can't make a profession of faith, you can't take the Lord's Supper. They fired him for it. He noted the licentiousness among the town's youth. The youth were in the habit of night walking, frequenting the taverns taverns, and lewd practices. Family governance was breaking down. In 1734, more than 300 church members trusted Jesus Christ for the first time in Northampton Awakening. And the the sermon that he preached was, God is a God of love. No? No, he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sinners in the hands. You people, he said, are sinners in the hands of an angry God. It is only by God's good grace that he doesn't allow you to fall into the fiery torment of hell. He is not your friend. He hates you. You are his enemy. You killed his son. You are nothing like a boulder falling into the pit of hell that all you think that that you're saved, the only thing that's going to save you is a spider web. And a spider web can't support the boulder that you are falling into the fires of hell. Now, I was pretty animated when I said that, wasn't I? When he read this sermon, he read it with his elbow on the table. He read just like that. All of his sermons were read with his glasses on his nose. He was a total monotone. How about that? This changed our country. People were rolling around in the aisles, begging for forgiveness. God used him. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. Edward says, it was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought unto them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborns, husbands over their wives, and wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on public worship. From time to time, in tears, while the word was preached, our young people, when they met, were wont to spend the time talking of the excellency and the dying love of Jesus Christ. Well, what's going on here? Uh, in the United States, now there's a guy named John Wesley. If you're a Methodist, you know who John Wesley was. He's leading a revival in England. While Fralinghausen, Tennant, and Edwards were preaching in the colonies a revival, grew up in England around John Wesley and George Whitfield. This great awakening. In 1736, John Wesley, an Anglican priest, was impressed by a group of Moravian priests on a ship. He came to the United States to go to Georgia to preach Christ. On the way, the ship was about to sink Tossed and turned on the seas. Everyone thought they were going to die. He meets a group of Moravians. You remember who the Moravians were? Followers of John Hus, that bohemian, pre Protestant guy. And he found them sitting together singing songs, quoting the Psalms, and in complete peace, knowing they were going to die in that ship. And he realized, I'm not saved, these people are. They all lived. he came to Christ. He said, I went to America to convert the Indians. John wept after seeing their faith, but oh, who shall convert me? Two years later, John and his brother Charles were converted. And if you like hymns, Charles wrote 90% of them. Their methodical approach to discipleship in their holy clubs earned them the title Methodist. So they had a methodology of fasting, Bible reading, beating themselves with whips. They beat themselves. They tried to beat themselves into a holy submission found it didn't work. In fact, George Whitfield was part of it, and he said, I'm out of here. This is not what I want to be like. His holiness, he was striving for holiness. It became the strongest theme in Wesley's life. He was an Arminian, however, and he was never sure of his salvation as a result. You can't be if you're Arminian. You can never believe you're actually saved. Uh, you might do something, say something before you die, and you're going to be sent straight to hell. In fact, Wesley's dying words, he did not believe he was going to heaven when he died. was never sure but I think he's there. He said he didn't think it, believed salvation was by grace, but that it could absolutely be lost, and he thought he lost it every day. George Whitfield was impressed by the dis- disciplined life of the Holy Club, but he contacted Charles he contacted Charles Wesley and he joined their club. And he so abused his body that holy living, in holy living, that he almost died from it. That's when he said, I'm done with this. He became the most famous famous Methodist preacher. Thousands gathered to hear him preach. Ben Franklin of all people. He was good buddies with Ben Franklin. And since churches wouldn't let Whitfield in to preach, he preached outside. And Ben Franklin ran the the test to see how many people could hear him. And his great booming voice, which you had to do back in those days. I speak in a microphone. I can just speak like I normally speak. Back then, you had to have a a trained voice. Ben Franklin said, this man can be heard by over, get this, 30,000 people at one time. That's how many people were gathering to hear him preach. 30,000. I mean, that's going to a ball game at, at Minute Maid Park. 30,000 people can hear this man preach. You know what his famous word was? Any of you know what people would ask him to say? Say the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> Apparently his word Mesopotamia was wonderful. I'm out of time. I've got just, oh, i just got a couple more. So I can, Misty, you can hang with me, right? The response to Whitfield's message was so amazing that it was dubbed the Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards loved Whitfield, but he was not happy about the emotionalism of the Awakening. Um, Edwards was a real stoic. He's not, and I shouldn't say real stoic. He was, he was, I would say, like me, in a sense, uh, not not real excitable. Uh, Whitfield loved people jumping around. Yeah, you know, getting feeling the spirit and all. Uh, Edwards noted it and wrote books on it, going, "I don't, I don't think, I don't like this. It's not right. I don't want people acting rolling around and jumping around, acting barking at the moon because they're Christians." Um, uh, he and Edwards disagreed on that, but they were still brothers in Christ. Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, wrote about Whitfield. What a spell Whitfield casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. I have seen upwards of a thousand people hang on his words with breathless silence, broken only by a half-suppressed sob. He impresses the ignorant and not less the educated and refined. Our mechanics shut up their shops and day laborers throw down their tools and go to hear him preach. And few return unaffected. He speaks from a heart all aglow with love and pours out a torrent of eloquence, which is almost irresistible. Now that woman could write. Sarah Edwards, you want to read someone impressive, read about Sarah Edwards. She was awesome. Edwards, on the marks of the work of the true spirit, he said, these are not signs of someone who have the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read this in your modern charismatic church, they'd fire Jonathan Edwards too. Tears, shaking, groans, etc., not Christian. A lot of noise about religion, not Christian. Great impressions made on people's imaginations, not Christian. Following the example of others, folks guilty of great imprudence and imprudence, I should say, and irregularities in their conduct. That's not, he said, that's not a sign of the Spirit. Errors in judgment, that's definitely not. But he said the signs that do accompany the Spirit are raising the esteem of Jesus, in other words, uh, highly exalting his name, actions against the interests of Satan, acting against him, a greater regard for the Scriptures, and love. Which one are you going with? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for blessing our time in this study. Uh, I I trust it is you as we look at the history of the church. I trust that we are are learning uh, examples. We're learning lessons from the examples of the past. And I pray that we would pray, Lord, that the Bible, your word, your inspired word, would be our guide. There's always differing opinions. May we learn to love those who share different opinions and to agree to disagree on the things that just don't matter, but may we come together as one and be unified in our our love of Christ and of of spreading his word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Walde, senior pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.